What's the relationship between the emotional heart and the physical heart? And why is that connection so important? Let's talk all about it with cardiologist, Dr. Jonathan Fisher, the Happy Heart MD, right here in episode 291 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, we continue to disseminate as much high quality evidence-based information and expert opinion as we can in our special bonus COVID episodes, which are now monthly. Meanwhile, we wanna support you in your career, in your personal development and your professional development and discuss issues you care about and maybe even things you haven't even thought about yet. So I love having you along for the ride, whether you're new to the show, you've been on this journey with me for months or maybe even years. Thank you for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is about you, your nursing career, and the healthcare ecosystem at large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, education, and beyond. And remember that Nurse Keith Coaching is your one-stop shop for all things related to your career. I offer individualized, holistic career coaching for nurses and healthcare professionals. And if you reach out at Keith at NurseKeith.com and tell me you're a listener, you get 10% off your first coaching package. And today... We are here for episode 291 and the show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 291. And we are here with friend of the pod, Jonathan Fisher, the happy heart MD. And Jonathan, we're going to talk all about your bio and your career. But first, I just wanted to jump into the deep end and ask you, what is the connection between the physical heart and the emotional heart? And then why is that important for us to recognize? Mm, I like jumping in deep right away, Keith. Uh, You're speaking right to my heart. And I really want to say thank you for having me. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. In terms of the connection, I come at it in a slightly different way. And I find it helpful that there is no disconnection. In fact, any separation between mind and heart are purely in our mind. Uh, So when we think about it that way, we realize that every time we're feeling any emotion, whether it's positive emotion, negative or challenging emotion, the heart is kind of like a barometer. And though we might not feel it, there are actual changes. There are chemical changes. There are nervous changes that are happening, certainly after the emotion becomes clear, but oftentimes even before we are consciously aware that there's an emotion our heart is registering changes. Now you're talking about the physical and let's say electrical heart, everything that happens within that heart. And then we also have the, the metaphoric heart that I know you work with as well. Mm-hmm. We have the, the Valentine heart, you know, that everybody makes mm-hmm. that symbol and selfies and photographs and we send cards to each other and there are emojis we send each other with hearts. So what does that represent to you? And mm. the fact that the heart, the symbol, that cultural symbol of the heart is so powerful and we use it so much. So what does that mm. really mean to you? So when I think about that heart, I think about emotions. And when I look at human beings, we like to think that we're thoughtful and that we have a good reason. Um, but in a sense, we are millions of years old. And at our core, we are constantly reacting to our environment. And we're reacting on a very 
basic primal level with emotions. And those emotions for me represent the heart. So if you have a broken heart, it means that you feel devastated, a sense of grief, a sense of loss. If you have um, a heartful sense of enjoyment, uh, the heart feels warm and it feels light. Uh, If you're afraid, um, the heart can feel cold. And so when I think about the metaphorical heart, the heart of poetry and of literature and of Shakespeare, I think about and our day to day and emails too, right? right. Um, and, and everyday life, um, it's, for me, it's the emotional center of the body and it's not an accident. Um, and, and this may sound a little bit strange, but when I was first learning about emotions, uh, it wasn't as a child. I was kind of dumb as a kid in terms of emotions. I was all stuck in my left brain and kind of nerdy and geeky. Um, And it was really only about a decade ago when it occurred to me that the word feelings comes from feeling things in the body itself, not actually thinking about them. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the heart is really the center of the human experience because that's where emotions are felt most strongly often. We feel them in the heart and we feel them in the gut, right? I have a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about the mind, Keith, I don't think about just the brain up here. In fact, I think about the whole body as being part of the mind. And I think about the heart, the physical heart, as being a key to understanding our mind. So that's where I feel emotion strongly. I see. And just as an aside, you know, I was thinking of the, the term heartstrings. I haven't heard that term recently, but you know, pulling on my heartstrings and I think of Purkinje fibers and I'm like, maybe we should call feelings Purkinje's and then we would, you know, we would think about it more. I have such a strong, (laughs) yeah, I have a really strong Purkinje about that. Or you heard my Purkinje's, right. Anyway, um, folks, if you don't remember the Purkinje fibers from physiology, you can go back or anatomy. So in terms of that metaphoric heart then and as it relates to the this the the electrical physical heart and then that that the feeling heart which is something even even deeper and then the gut you know i've read articles and seen things i think many of us have about the intelligence of the gut that there's actually more happening there than we've ever given it credit for like a gut feeling actually there's actually maybe physiological basis for that gut feeling. So when we talk about our heart, is there is there a bridge that you can help us build between the physical and the, the emotional heart and yeah. give us ways to understand the connection as you as you teach it? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, when you think about a bridge, you've got two sides to the bridge and you can describe the bridge from either side. So if we start by describing the bridge between the mind, which is where we become aware of our emotions or that metaphorical heart and the physical heart, you think, well, how can information be passed on? And information in the body is passed on either through electricity or through chemicals, basically. And so we're going to basically build a a simple electrochemical pathway from the brain to the heart. And it really starts in the ancient part of the brain called the limbic system, where Mm -hmm. we feel our emotions. And this part of the brain, as you know, has at its center the amygdala, a little almond-shaped organ, which is kind of like the brain's alarm center. Okay, I got a nasty email, I start to get angry, or I see something happening on social media that gets my emotions up. So what's happening is the amygdala starts to fire and the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, the part that likes to be the 
the one that's in charge that feels really smart, it actually goes offline. And so the signals from the planning part of the brain start to quiet down and the signals from the emotional part of the brain start to heat up. They feed into the hypothalamus. So really in the core of the brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, right? And that's kind of the seat where we have the beginning of our sympathetic nervous system, this so-called fight or flight. So from the beginning, we've got an emotion. It triggers a reaction in the brain. We have to get that information to the rest of the body. And it starts through the hypothalamus and the pineal gland through activating the sympathetic nervous system, both on an electrical level, so there are nerves, and on a chemical level with cortisol, adrenaline, etc. Um, one of the key nerves in the sympathetic nervous system is actually balancing it. It's the parasympathetic. So right now, Keith, what determines whether you and I are kind of getting along and chilled out or whether we're stressed out is the balance. My internal balance between my sympathetic and parasympathetic and your internal balance. Ideally, we're both going to be having a nice kind of mix of the two where we're, we're not falling asleep, but we're energized, right? Mm -hmm. And so the key nerve we're still working our way down from the brain, is the vagus nerve. The vagus means it's a vagabond. It's a wanderer. It's the longest nerve in the body. And that really is the connection between the heart and the gut and the brain. Vagus uh, for vagabond. I never made that Latin etymological connection. It's the wanderer. And it really touches down. It can slow down the heartbeat. It can lower the blood pressure. And I like to think about the vagus as the empathy nerve also. Hmm. Because before I came on to talk with you today, Keith, I wanted to get myself in a state of mind or also in a state of heart where we could create something awesome, right? And to do that, I kind of did some deeper breathing. I thought some pleasant thoughts about you and I kind of getting oh, along. Thank and I, you. well, of course, well, it's easy with you. <laughs> uh, so, so the reason that that works is that it's activating the nerve connecting my brain to my heart. And it actually is putting my heart in a more receptive state, both literally more relaxed. Uh, I know that I'm not under stress and figuratively the emotional heart, my emotional state is much more loving and open and kind. And that also helps me when I'm with my patients or if I'm on the nurses on my team or even talking to administrators, I love to try to stay in that sort of vaguely predominant state rather than the, the hyped up, revved up uh, sympathetic state, which I've lived about 30 years in before realizing all of this. Right. <laughs> right. And, and when you talk about the amygdala as the, the alarm bell, you know, there's a term that I've heard bandied about over the decades, which is amygdala hijacking. Like when mm -hmm. your amygdala just like, right, the, the prefrontal cortex kind of shuts down and the amygdala has hijacked your ability to think logically, to think clearly, right? Mm -hmm. And is the amygdala, it's not really part of the reptilian, right? It's sort of more of the midbrain. Is that true? It, it's, it's right near the intersection there, and I've, I've looked this up in a number of ways. So it's, uh, it, some people would consider it part of the reptilian brain. The, okay. So the, the whole concept of reptilian brain is a, is a beautiful yet oversimplification saying that the brain only has three parts, right? There's the ancient sort of uh, core of the brain, there's the midbrain, and there's the prefrontal cortex. It's more conceptual. Uh, okay. So, all right, I will... Bear that in mind. So the amygdala is kind of a, like right in the right in the the transitional place right there. Yes, again, reptilian. I'm, 
Exactly. I'm not a neurologist, but it's in the junction between completely subconscious structures in our brain that are responsible for cardiovascular system and respiration and the conscious parts of our brain that are able to name emotions. Mm -hmm. So name fear, et cetera. Uh, It's sort of in between those two. I see. And now since we're talking about the heart and we've mentioned Purkinje fibers, the vagus nerve, we've, we, you know, we've, we haven't delved too deep into the, the physiology and anatomy, but we're getting the picture. You are actually a clinical cardiologist. And how mm-hmm. long have you been a cardiologist and a doctor? I graduated medical school 20 years ago from Mount Sinai in New York, and I've been practicing cardiology for a little over 15 years, I would say. And what did you practice those first four or five years prior to cardiology? Uh, so th- actually, those were my medical school and my residency. So I, oh, okay. I just had an MD at that point. And I practiced being a resident, which really meant staying alive. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, not, not trying to get hijacked by your amygdala too much and staying awake yeah. once in a it, while. It really was. Uh, My residency uh, was so proud of itself because it was pioneering in the fact that it guaranteed residents four hours of sleep at night. So we would go and we would hand our beepers off at two in the morning. And it was like we would have a party because we didn't have to answer a page until six. Um, Little did we know the impact of not having enough sleep in terms of medical errors, right? In terms of how we behave when we're around other people. Um, And And so I think we're getting a lot smarter. I hope we are uh, in terms of the need for basic human functions in terms of doctors and nurses uh, to function at their best. Yeah. And you're a certified mindfulness meditation teacher, a corporate well-being consultant, and you're known around the globe as a very dynamic, sought-after keynote speaker. But you also work, do you work full-time as a clinician? Uh, 90% is full-time. 90%. Yeah. So I have a half a day a week where I work on everything else, everything you just mentioned right now, and soon to be more time than that. Uh, It's in transition. I'm making a a bit of a shift right now. I see. Uh, But currently, and for the last 15 years, I spend uh, 90% of my time on call in the emergency room, ICU, seeing consults, cardiogenic shock, uh, and then about 60% of the time in clinic. I see between two and 3,000 patients each year. Wow. And so if you have half a day off a week and you need to speak in Dubai, you spend a lot of time flying. <laughs> you don't get to really see Dubai, do you? You just kind of fly you in, speak, and fly the, out. You bank up the time and uh, spend some vacation time as well. Doing. I'm what so I, glad. I'm so glad you don't just fly to Dubai, speak, and then hop on a plane and fly home. That's good. So Jonathan, other than being a practicing clinical cardiologist, certified mindfulness meditation teacher, and you consult and you speak, you're in a leadership role at Novant Health. And what is Novant Health and what are your responsibilities there? Novant Health is a multi-state healthcare organization in the Southeast covering four states. We have 30,000 employees and 1,600 physicians. And my role there is on the organizational resilience and well-being team. And I work with Dr. Tom Jenicky, who's the chief well-being officer or chief wellness officer for the whole organization. And my role is uh, many, many-hatted. Uh, so 
I really uh, think of myself as trying to take care of the caregivers, so the nurses and the doctors and the pharmacists, and understanding what their stressors are, what's driving the anxiety, rates of depression and burnout, and then what's happening on a global level, who's doing it well that we can emulate, and what are we doing well internally that's consistent with basic psychology of how do you have happy employees? And so, for example, uh, I lead workshops on communication. So it's called empathic communication. So anyone who's interested in improving their communication skills or people who are struggling, so doctors and nurses who are struggling to either getting into conflict with colleagues or patients are saying, you know, I just didn't like the way you were talking to me. They're really basic principles that if you follow them, turns out things go better, right? Communication. Um, I also have been involved in the COVID resiliency uh, steering committee. So we are seeing increased levels of stress and we're developing programs. So I'm developing a system-wide program that will go on for about a year on stress mastery. So what are the basics of how we deal with frustration and stress and challenging emotions? Um, All the things that I wish I had learned when I was a medical student and a resident, but nobody ever taught me. Uh, And so that's part of it. I also uh, lead mindfulness workshops. So I lead a half-day retreat for uh, physicians, for nurses, anyone who wants to learn, what's the big deal with mindfulness? Why is it so popular right now? Why are we talking about it? Um, I also lead programs and retreats for nurses on compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and how we can practice self-compassion, which is also something I knew nothing about. And now it's very central to my own resiliency. Um, those are some of the hats that I wear uh, working. And the beautiful part of Novant's model is, was started by Dr. Jenicki about seven years ago. And he realized through his own struggle through burnout that coaching really helps. And I know you know a lot about coaching. You're an expert. And well, it turns out it helps physicians too and nurses. Uh, just like a, a football player, a baseball player, a dancer, You wouldn't think of competing without having the best possible coach. So why not offer that to our team members? And so Novant has been on the cutting edge of offering coaching services to uh, the providers for many years now. And I'm joining that work as well. Wow. So it's a multi-state health system. I see that they have outpatient, inpatient, ERs, clinics, et cetera. And they do all this for their employees. That's correct. Okay. Well, there's probably someone listening out there who's like, wow, I want to look up this company right now because so many organizations don't do these things. So when we come back from a quick break, Jonathan, I want to talk more about how you approach this with your clinicians at Novant in your leadership role in the um, organizational resilience and well-being team and the COVID-19 burnout prevention and recovery task force at Novant. And then what you do with MindHeart now LLC, that's your own separate business, completely separate from your work at Novant. So we're going to be right back for the second half of episode 291. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. 
please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. All right. Welcome back to the second half of this episode. The show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode of the number 291, where you're going to want to go to learn more about Jonathan Fisher, Mind Heart Now LLC, and Novant Health. And Jonathan, prior to the break, we were talking just very briefly about the work at Novant in terms of the organizational resilience and well-being team and the COVID-19 burnout prevention and recovery task force at Novant. And these are things that have been put together specifically for Novant employees. And some of my listeners might be running to Novant right now, trying to see if they can apply for positions at one (laughs) of your facilities. So what does it mean to create, or how would we say it? to nurture, I guess, organizational resilience and well-being. How does mm-hmm. that, what does that look like in an organization, whether Novant or if you want to generalize more? Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing question and reminding you that I'm a cardiologist. So I didn't learn about any of this going through my training, and yet I wish that I had more of a vocabulary before I burnt out myself. Um, so in my own thinking, an organization is no more than a collection of people. So you can't change an organization. You have to change one person at a time or at least offer people the resources so that they can help themselves. Um, The second thing that I would start with is that to define an organization, we have to think about the culture of that organization. So uh, culture means how do we speak? What words do we use? What are our rituals? Uh, What are the practices that we have? So kind of the day-to-day. And then in terms of how do you help a culture of an organization, First thing is you have to define what your values are. So Novant value is to provide remarkable care, just really special experience for people. Um, And then going a step further, once as an organization, you've defined what your core values are, and there are likely many of them, you start by raising awareness of whether you're meeting those values, right? It's like the same work you would do on yourself or with uh, someone that you're coaching. You start off with, well, where would you like to go and where are you right now? And often that's the hardest step in my own experience is that awareness step because there's a lot of barriers, things that we don't 
want to know about ourselves, right? We don't want to look at the ugly parts and the dark parts, like uh, maybe we're not doing things so well. Um, so practically speaking, uh, one of the first steps is you put out a survey or a questionnaire um, to all the employees uh, that surveys all aspects of stress, burnout, anxiety, uh, job factors. And there are Likert questions and there are open-ended questions. You just gather information, kind of like taking the pulse if you go into a room with a patient. Mm -hmm. You don't start by giving a prescription, uh, right, for lifestyle or medicines. You start by examining. You assess. Uh, you yeah. assess, exactly. And so it's no different on an organizational level. And so recently, the survey went out to, to thousands of employees and over 8,000 employees responded. And we kind of start to get a sense of high levels of stress in healthcare for a number of reasons. Uh, and then you ask people, well, what's bothering you the most? And another principle that I follow is you can't change everything at once and you certainly can't fix everything at once. And if you try, you end up... Uh, complaining and frustrated and feel like you're spinning your tail. However, if you ask people, well, what's your number one priority? What do you want to work on now? I learned something else in doing that. Not everyone agrees. And so much of the reason that change doesn't happen in organizations is one person wants one thing, another person wants another. What we need to learn, and I really think this is fundamental, is the ability to bring two different groups of people together with differing needs and wants that could be administrators and nursing leaders, or it could be nurses and doctors or pharmacists, whoever it is. And we have to bring people together to find creative solutions, starting with the premise that it's possible for us all to get along. It's possible for all, us all to get our basic needs met. So that's how I approach my work on an organizational level. Um, now, getting a little more granular there, uh, what we can change right away and what makes a big difference in culture is how we treat other people. And we know from Google and from many of the Fortune 100 companies that the key to a healthy culture is psychological safety. Mm -hmm. That means that if you are a leader, nurse leader, physician leader, the number one thing you want to look out for in your team is if I'm on the team, do, am I comfortable raising my voice, raising my hand, saying when I'm not happy? Like, it's easy to say, oh, this is a great way to go, and that's important. And perhaps I think we don't do that enough. We don't celebrate victories enough. Uh, there are reasons for that. Uh, but can we create a culture, Keith, where it's okay for you to disagree with me, and you know you're not going to get in trouble? Exactly. And, and together, we want to make it a safer environment for our patients. The only way to do that is if you're comfortable saying, hey, you know what? This didn't go so well. And I'm not worried that I'm going to lose my job or get reported. I just want to do what's best for the team. So psychological safety is a, a very a foundational um, piece. And I think along with that, if you said, well, okay, Jonathan, how would you bring about psychological safety? Well, you need a core value and a core competency to achieve that. And I think it's empathy and <laughs> compassion, right? Right. And and, and what I learned about empathy and compassion uh, as a person and also within an organization is that I used to think, well, there's some people who are kind and compassionate and there's other people who are kind of maybe jerks, right? <laughs> and, and never the twain shall meet. Mm -hmm. But the science shows that you can learn how to be more compassionate. You can train it. Absolutely. Right? You can learn skills of emotional and relational and behavioral intelligence. You can learn skills of communication, verbal and nonverbal. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of things we can learn. And I don't know if you're 
familiar with my friend Dr. Renee Thompson. She has the she runs the Healthy Workforce Institute, and she's one of the foremost experts in the world on bullying and incivility in nursing and healthcare. And that's what she helps root out from organizations, among other things. And you know, when we have incivility, you just brought it up. Can I speak out in my organization? And can I know that I'll be honored for my opinion? And will I not be denigrated, dismissed, looked down upon, fired, for instance, if I bring up a disagreement with a policy or procedure? And so it sounds like Novant is very dedicated to this within their system, you know, that ecosystem of Novant's facilities, let's say. And then your organization, your company, MindHeart LLC, this is where you create transformational interactive programs for people and organizations to learn a lot of these skills. So it sounds like, <laughs> for lack of a better term, could I say that in in Novant, within that ecosystem, that seems like it's a laboratory for you. And then you can take some of the best practices out into the world beyond the Novant system. Is that true? And you can take it beyond the borders of Novant? I learned a term from a, a mutual friend of ours, Paul Zelizer. Paul uh, Zelizer, yep. Intrapreneur. Intrapreneur. Intrapreneur, that's right. And, and so I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but that's uh, part of what I'm doing is, um, is creating and innovating. And what's wonderful about Novant is uh, my boss, that's Dr. Jenicki, when I asked him three years ago, I said, well, how would you like me to spend my time that half a day a week? He looked at me and he said, you're talking to me for a reason. I trust you. Uh, you know what needs to be done. And I, I trust whatever it is that you want to work on. Go for it. And then wow. three years later, after leading over 2,000 people in live programs and 30 events, getting all sorts of feedback and taking notes and doing research, I kind of get a sense of what people are needing right now. And I'm working both within and outside the organization on, on all of that. That's fantastic. And you may be aware, I'm sure, or I'm, well, I'm sure you're aware of the folks out there who do medical improv. There's mm -hmm. Dr. Candy Campbell and Beth Boynton, my friends. Mm -hmm. And then we have Alan Alda, who has the Alda Center for Communication Science, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he has his podcast, Clear and Vivid. So there's all of you doing that, that work in organizational wellness and not just teaching people, I mean, not just, but you're, you're going further than teaching meditation and relaxation techniques. You're teaching mm -hmm. people how to develop empathy and get mm -hmm. along and communicate well. And in the end, we could say if we were CEOs or CFOs, wow, that's a really expensive endeavor and we can't afford to bring Jonathan Fisher or Candy Campbell or Renee Thompson or Alan Alda in here. But if you have happier employees, if they're getting along well, if they trust the culture and they feel safe, what's the impact on care, quality of care? What happens? And you've probably seen it very directly. What happens out there? Yeah. So um, uh, there's a good data coming in now, actually, on the return on investment. So, so in terms of the numbers, there are PhDs in economics who are now publishing the cost of burnout. Uh, because you're right, that's a common refrain. Well, is it good for the bottom line? So mm -hmm. what I would say is we need to have a second bottom line or replace the first one. We can't ignore finances. We can't ignore the need for profit, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. However, we can acknowledge that there has to be a human heart-centered bottom line. And by the heart, now I'm talking about the emotional yes. state of the people who work with you. So uh, I witnessed this firsthand. I was a jerk of a doctor for over a decade. And you? it pains, yes. I can't <laughs> believe it, Jonathan. Uh, if there was a video of me uh, a little over 10 years ago, Keith, what you would have seen is a frazzled, frenzied, stressed out, anxious doctor who was worried about the metrics that were being tracked, was struggling to keep up with basic clerical stuff, all sorts of questions that I had to ask that maybe didn't have to do with my patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really was very nervous um, mm. about patients getting harmed, about not meeting Uh, certain milestones. Um, And I was also very closed off emotionally. I was taught in medical school that you have to leave your emotions at the door. And what I am realizing, fortunately, is that one cannot be a fully fleshed human being and to experience the joys and the wonders and the marvel in life if you choose to just shut off certain emotions. And Brene Brown has done some wonderful work on this. It's not like... It's, it's, it's like a faucet. You can't just turn off uh, grief that happens as a, when you have a patient die. You can't just shut off uh, shame or embarrassment. Uh, because when you do that, you shut off a little bit of the joy when your kids are around and a little bit of the pleasure when you're outside, you forget to look up uh, and smell the roses. And so, mm. um, and so a lot of the work that I've done, I'm going a little bit off tangent here now, is learning to be with pain. Uh, my own pain and acknowledging that it's okay for a doctor to say that he has had pain and that he's been anxious and he's had depression. Now, some of my patients might be listening and they may say, I don't want to go to a doctor who's had difficulty with mental health, who's had those challenges. However, I do think that our world, and I'm hoping that this is the case, is entering a new era. One where it's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that we are human beings and that Part of the problem of burnout is that we force ourselves into this model of a superhero. And, and we have this idea that superheroes can't feel and they can't cry and they can't hope and they can't dream. Um, and so uh, in learning to become human again, I've, I've become a doctor now that people love to hug and my patients, I can't get away. This is pre-COVID, of course. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so my staff used to, I, I they gave feedback to the manager a decade ago. They said, we don't really love working with Dr. Fisher. It seems oh, no. like he's just really kind of thinking, how can he get through the day? And um, almost very transactional, my relationship with everyone. Like, what can you do for me right now? Wow. And now, and now, and I'm going to tell you something else. I'm going to admit this now. I'd, maybe we'll edit it out. But I actually had a checklist item for myself to buy donuts for my staff 10 years ago to get them to like me. <laughs> and I, I think it's good for people to hear that. It's good yeah. for them to hear that. So, so, so <laughs> well, well here's, an, here's the flip side. And my staff might not like it. I've subsequently taken that off the list. Number one, because donuts aren't the healthiest food for my heart staff, but really because I don't need that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, What I give my staff every day I walk into the office, I I love the people that I work with and I ask my nurses, hey, how's your son doing? Hey, how's that that weekend project that you're working on? How's your Mm -hmm. mother? Uh, and, And there's a phrase that comes back from my own training in medical school that stands out. And remember, I, I took neuroanatomy for three months. Uh, it was ridiculously excessive, but there was one phrase that was taught by a nice gentleman. And he said, people don't care how much you know 
until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. I love and that. That's been kind of like a mantra for me lately uh, in most of the work that I do. That's that's beautiful, and I'm so glad you brought all of that up, including the donuts. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I had a doctor on the show is episode 265, and that was um, Dr. Kyle Jones, and he wrote a book. Um, fallible, which I think I told you about, mm. which was about being a doctor living with mental illness. Mm. And not that long ago, I had my friend Tiffany Swedeen at recoverandrise.com on the show. She's a nurse who helps other nurses who've been through substance use disorders mm-hmm. and who have even diverted medication or come to work under the influence. She mm-hmm. was one of those nurses and she's very public about her story. So there are very courageous people out there sharing their stories. I've shared about having PTSD and depression and chronic pain here on my show. So Mm -hmm. some of us choose to out ourselves in that way to serve as models of, hey, you know, I can be super functional and I can also admit I have PTSD, right? Or I've had a substance use disorder or I've I've made lists to make sure I remember to bring donuts to the (laughs) nurses, you know? So we can all be fallible in Dr. Kyle Jones lingo, you know, in many, many different ways. So as we wind down, and this has been far too short, Jonathan, we need like five hours, um, but our audience has to, you know, go about their day and as do you and I. So for, let's say, a nurse out there listening right now, let's kind of go granular for a person. So let's say she works in a COVID ICU or an ICU that is pretty much COVID-centric right now. And we're recording this in late September 2020. Mm -hmm. So even if it's past the pandemic, when someone's listening to this in 2023, we still all experience great amounts of stress. So what are a couple practical things that nurse can do or study or think about or tune into so that she can feel like, She's got a little more resilience on tap. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of key features um, that we start with. And for me, it always comes back to one, which is a sense of hope and a sense of choice. So, so much of burnout is, uh, stems from hopelessness and feeling mm-hmm. helpless. And so if we can't control uh, the epidemic itself and what's happening on a global level, which we can't, Uh, we have to look at the things that we can control. And that could be something real simple. I get out of bed and I make my bed. Um, I get out of bed and I say, I love you to the people in my house. So we, we start off by developing a sense of choice over how we behave ourselves. And that's something that we can control. That's not easy. But for me, that's the fundamental choice I would give to anyone who's dealing with COVID stress right now. Remembering that despite what's happening around you, it may feel like you have to scream, you have to yell at someone, and sometimes that's we need to get a scream out. We always have a choice. Um, the, the second is, on a practical level, there are ways to calm the nervous system uh, that are very practical. And it may be as simple as finding one minute to sit quietly and to just feel your body, feel the feet on the floor, and take a nice deep breath, filling up the belly so-called diaphragmatic breathing. It's used in the military for a reason Mm -hmm. because it activates that vagus nerve that we talked about and it tips the balance of the physical body towards relaxation. Even if the mind is still wandering and racing, we'll get to that, okay? We have to start with the body and there could be chaos going around us. 
in the intensive care unit. But if we ground ourselves, and that literally means feeling supported by the ground of the, of the floor, mm. feeling our body in space, remembering that we are not our thoughts, even though our thoughts are going a mile in a minute, mm. we are also a body with feelings. The third step that I would say is developing a sense of, of clarity about what's really happening. Even though we're stressed out, is the world really ending? Uh, is our future really hopeless? Uh, or are these thoughts that are being generated in the midst of a body that's agitated and stressed out? And so the skill here is to start to question our thoughts. So if I'm having a hard shift and I'm saying to myself, I can't take this anymore. Well, a skill is to recognize that that is just a thought in my own mind. And I do not have to believe that thought. So it's a skill of starting to recognize what you can call mental chatter which we all have, and we all have twenty to 30,000 thoughts a day, and about 80% of them are negative and repetitive, especially when we're taking care of COVID patients. Ah, not another, not another. I'm so frustrated. Right. Um, and, and so a skill is to start to notice your own thoughts mm-hmm. and notice whether they're positive or negative without even changing anything. Yeah. In Buddhism, they call that monkey mind. Yes. Yeah. A- absolutely. So the monkey mind can very much be calmed. And as a side note, if you start to practice meditation in a formal sense, where in your car after a shift, if you just put on one of these apps for five minutes, do it for a week, and you start to notice a little bit of a calming of that monkey mind, mm. and you start to hear those thoughts, that's the whole point of what's called mindfulness meditation, where you're sitting. The point isn't to uh, re- achieve nirvana and float off the bed, right? The point is to start noticing what's actually happening in the world and what your own internal thoughts and feelings are, and separate the two out. Mm-hmm. And then the last practical piece, Keith, and for me, this is really everything. Um, and this is why I'm here with you now as part of my own resiliency plan. It's about connecting. No matter how much stress there is in the world, if I can find another person in this world who either A, is experiencing the same thing, B, uh, cares about me, or see that I care about, and I can express some sense of that care, there's something amazing that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, that's, that's why we're all in medicine. It's to connect with other people. And we lose sight of that fact because of all the demands on us and because our bodies get out of balance. So I would say the last key there is, uh, is remem- finding a way to connect with one other person in your day. Even if it's a phone call or a text message or writing a letter of gratitude for, <laughs> to a grandma or to someone who taught you in nursing school uh, saying, hey, I'm going through some hard times, but I just wanted to say thank you for, for caring for me in the way that you did. Hmm. So this sounds a lot like relational intelligence, emotional intelligence, and it also sounds like basic mindfulness practices, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And you and I talked about CBT. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what CBT is? Yeah, so cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the more recent waves in the last 30 years or so of psychology. And Mm -hmm. it says that um, a skillful way of dealing with stress is starting to recognize the difference between what's happening in the world and what our thoughts and behaviors are. Because we're Uh, not our thoughts and our thoughts don't have to dictate our behavior. That's it. That's it. And once we recognize that, the whole skill is increasing the amount of space, and by space I really mean time, Mm -hmm. between the moment that you say something to me, Keith, and my ability to become aware of my internal reaction to that. 
So, uh, so I don't, I don't yell back at you. You know, we often say, Oh, I was triggered by that person. And I was right. triggered by this person. Right. What mindfulness does MBCT, MBCSR, MBACT, all these mindfulness based psychologies, what they're doing is increasing the time between something happening and your ability to hear your own impulse to respond so that you don't respond in that ancient primal way. And instead, you can activate the front of your brain, the part that loves to connect and care for other people, the loving mm-hmm. part of the brain, and to quiet that ancient primal part of the brain that's more fear-based and survival-based. Get which, that amygdala to chill out. Yeah, get the amygdala to chill out. With COVID, we're all in this survival mode. And what we can do each day intentionally is outsmart our own brains. Mm. We can say, okay, I can't change COVID, but I can still touch into that loving part of my own ancient brain and activate it each day on purpose. And I'm going to shut off some of the news. I'm going to shut off the notifications on my phone because everyone is vying for my attention. And once I lose control of my attention, the game is over because people who want my attention are there selling me something and they're trying to change my behavior and my thoughts. Uh, and this, is just, uh, yeah. this is just Nurse Keith like asking you to be on his podcast. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Nurse Keith is awesome. Um, oh, it's thanks, just such John. a thrill and a privilege to be with you. Oh, and, it's uh, great. Yeah. And you have activated my parasympathetic nervous system. I'm sitting here like, I'm so relaxed now. <laughs> so if people want to find you, I know they can go to mindheartnow.com. And then on Facebook, you're the Happy Heart MD. And on Instagram, you're Happy Heart MD. And on Twitter, you are Happy Heart MD. And then you're also on LinkedIn. So all of those links will be in the show notes at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 291. And Jonathan, we'll, we'll be having you back because there's so much more to talk about. And I need this parasympathetic reaction, you know, this instant relaxation response that you've caused in my body. So you know, this has been very instructive and this is stuff I've talked about here before with other people. And I think we to keep hearing this sort of information from different voices is really important. And hearing it from a cardiologist and making that connection between the physical heart and that metaphoric heart, I think is a very important piece here. So between the gut intelligence, the heart intelligence, the prefrontal cortex intelligence and understanding that limbic system. I think we've covered, you know, most of the torso and we've we've touched on things that people can really put into practice. So thank you so much for that. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'd love to be back. Thank you, Keith. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. And remember the show notes and everything you want to learn about Novant and about Dr. Jonathan Fisher, the Happy Heart MD will be at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 291. And I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode and take some inspired action every day, especially in the interest of your personal and professional well-being, just like we talked about in this episode. And if you need some holistic career coaching, remember to mention the show and you get 10% off your first coaching package. And head over to nursegeek.com to the drop-down menu under resources for resume templates from the Resume RX, jobs from Trusted Health, Incredible Health, ZipRecruiter, etc. And I want to remind you that the Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media. 
a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities whose aim is to add a humanistic touch to professional education, educate the public from a scientifically informed perspective, and improve lives by partnering to address social ills. We are at arslongham.media. That's A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A.media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network alongside Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Mayo Clinic, Penn Nursing, and many other high-quality podcasts. It's one of the fastest and largest growing collections of authoritative, high-quality podcasts taking on the tough topics in health and care with empathy, expertise, and commitment to excellence. Speaking of excellence, The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch, get in touch with that empathy deep inside you. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and friend of the pod, Jonathan Fisher, bidding you adieu from Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you, Jonathan. And we will catch everybody on the flip side.